Hello, and welcome to the Rockefeller Center's podcast, Rocky Talk. My name is Ben Vogley, and I'm a 22 at Dartmouth. Today, I was joined by Oren Cass, the executive director of the American Compass and the author of The Once and Future Worker, a vision for the renewal of work in America, which came out in 2018. Oren's work appears regularly in publications such as the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. In 2012, he served as the domestic policy director for Governor Mitt Romney's 2012 campaign for president. Our conversation focused on the future of conservatism and what conservatives have to offer in addressing the challenges of the 21st century. It was a really fascinating discussion, and I think you'll enjoy it a lot. So, without further ado, I give you Oren Cass. Oren, it's great to have you with us today. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. So, to start, you've been considering the future of conservatism in the tumultuous post-Trump political climate that we're in. So, I'm going to start with a pretty basic question here. Uh, what is conservatism? <laughs> that That is the million-dollar question. Um, you know, I think it means different things to different people, but for... For my purposes, it it seems to me that what's most meaningful about conservatism is is its a, a approach to life and <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and and a political attitude as well uh, that I think really focuses on on the importance of institutions and and that's sort of a a vague academic-y word. Um, but what I mean by that is is ultimately it recognizes that. The reason human civilization works and and that we have everything that we're fortunate to have is that we're not just a bunch of people (laughs) running around uh, and and we're not just all individuals trying to optimize our our personal outcomes at every moment in time. Um, We have all of these other forms of relationships and structures and interactions, whether it's you know, our, our families, our schools, the, the, the nation as a whole, the education system, the military, the, the way that the private sector operates, um, all of these different institutions interact in ways that, that, that form us and guide our behavior. Uh, and, and among other things are incredibly important then to ensuring that our markets can work well. And so I think conservatives come to policy discussions from from an, a recognition and appreciation of those things and, and a belief that uh, to make progress, we can't simply start from a blank slate and, and make things the way we wish they would be. We have to take account of, of things as they are and, and think about how we can go about improving that. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. And so I guess my next question would be, has the Republican Party over the past 40 or so years followed this kind of core philosophy that you're putting out? And from there, how would you characterize the conservatism that we've had in the modern era? Well, I think at least in economic terms that most of what we call conservatism today is is really quite libertarian. Um, you know, really going back to, to the Reagan era and, and even a little bit before, the, the American right of center came to be composed of, of a coalition that that included uh, foreign policy hawks, uh, social conservatives, and 
uh, economic libertarians. And, and that coalition made a lot of sense, particularly in the context of the Cold War. I mean, essentially, that's, that's a list of everybody who, who dislikes the Soviet Union the most. Um, <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and, and they were, among other things, extremely successful in, in fighting the Soviet Union um, and, and, and winning the Cold War. But there are a lot of things that they don't necessarily agree on and, and ways in which they had to compromise or sort of delegate authority. And, and so, you know, when it, when it comes to foreign policy, I think obviously a lot of things that we've come to think of as, as Republican foreign policy, for instance, are, are not necessarily conservative. There's not an awful lot that's conservative about thinking that you can sort of invade a country, change into a democracy and leave a few months later. Um, and, Likewise, on on the economic front, I, I don't think there's a lot that's inherently conservative uh, about the idea that essentially, uh, you know, free markets always deliver good outcomes, uh, and and that all you really need to do is let the market work and and get out of the way, uh, and uh, and and flourishing will happen from there. And, and so I think what, you know, there, there are many important economic insights from folks like Friedrich Hayek and, and Milton Friedman uh, and, and many important economic reforms that, that this country pursued in, in the 70s and 80s that were, were very needed. Uh, but, but I think some of that philosophy sort of ossified into a dogma that, you know, now is, is best represented by the idea that thou shalt always cut taxes and when in doubt a tax cut is what's needed uh and you know there hey look there are times when when a tax cut is what's needed but there's nothing conservative about <laughs> about an agenda that's just tax cuts or about the idea that you know more free tra- free trade is always good more free trade is always better and free trade with china is going to work out great uh and and so i think a sort of conservative sensibility you know the the left of center isn't going to provide it, and and on the right of center, it it really atrophied, uh, and and it's really been missing from from our economic discussions. Yeah, absolutely, and I think your description of these three disparate coalitions that formed the Republican Party during the Cold War is something that must resonate with a lot of Americans at this point, because you know over the past four years we've seen Donald Trump really in many ways upend that coalition, and so. On that note, I would love it if you could talk a bit about the impact that Donald Trump has had on conservatism and uh, where that leaves us as we look to the future of conservatism. Well, Trump himself is, of course, neither <laughs> neither neither a conservative nor a libertarian. It's, I'm, I'm yeah. not sure if he if he has any sort of um, go- governing principles in that respect. Um, but but I think you know what Trump exposed and and what his what his success underscores is the degree to which the the sort of GOP orthodoxy had really become stale and vulnerable and and disconnected from both uh, the the challenges that we have as a country and and the concerns and and preferences of of a lot of voters. Uh, and, you know, so I like to use the analogy that that Trump is is sort of like an earthquake. Um, yeah. You know, earth, <laughs> earthquakes don't don't build anything. They, they just knock things down. Um, but but you learn in an earthquake what's well built and, and what's not well built and, and what's either rickety or, or outdated or wasn't well engineered in the first place. Uh, and, and I think that that he exposed a lot of that and and opened up a lot of space for 
creative thinking and, and renewal and rebuilding. And, and so I think that's what's going on on the right of center now is, you know, to be sure there probably even a, a majority is is more inclined to just stick with the way things were. But but a lot of the energy and momentum is behind the effort to to learn from <laughs> to learn to learn from the Trump experience to learn from you know what it is that has actually been happening in the country in recent years that policymakers were not addressing uh, and and especially importantly to look at uh, what are the actual challenges we have today um, you know I think there's a way that a lot of folks on the right of center have come to mistake policy for principles, right? You know, tax cuts, a tax cut is a policy. It's it's not a principle. And yet, you know, I think it was early on during COVID, I saw uh, Ambassador Nikki Haley tweeted, uh, you know, something like when, you know, when when we're facing challenges, tax cuts are always a good idea. <laughs> it's like, that's that's just not a coherent thought, unfortunately. And so I think what we're dealing with is, you know, there was really important work done in the 70s and, and into the early 80s where conservatives took their principles and applied them to the problems of the 70s and 80s and generated a really important playbook. And we've just sort of been flipping through it ever since. And and so you have a right. lot of folks who are just sort of, well, what's going, you know, global pandemic, let, let me flip through the book and find the right Reagan tax cut for that. Whereas what's really needed is say, okay, what are the challenges of today that are totally different? Whether it's, you know, China, uh, whether it is, you know, the digital revolution, uh, rising inequality, the way financial markets are working. Um, we need to go through that process of renewal of, of taking those same conservative principles, but applying them to, to the challenges of today. And, and the playbook that comes out of that is going to look very different. Yeah, I couldn't agree with that more. I mean, I think that you're right that to some extent there's been some intellectual atrophy among conservatives over the past 40 years in this post-Trump earthquake moment that we're living in is really a great opportunity to take a look at some of those challenges and generate some fresh ideas. And so I'd love to start getting into that. Um, On that note, one of the great challenges that we're facing right now is China. And so how do you see conservatives as being positioned to address China's rise and, you know, formulate some sustainable foreign and economic policies to compete strategically with China in the 21st century? Well, I think the fascinating thing about China is in in economic terms, the way it really challenges a lot of just our economic models. Um, you know, I always think back to to my own economics 101 class and learning about comparative advantage and why free trade works. And I think the example the, the professor used was fish and sweaters. And, you know, it was the island with that, that had sheep and the island that, that had great fisheries. And they could obviously benefit if the island with the sheep made sweaters and the island with the fisheries fished and they traded fish for sweaters. Like, I remember doing the problem set where you do the math and you you, you see that everybody's better off. It's, it's, it's terrific. Oh, yeah. Um, I just took uh, micro, so I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, there, there you go. It's, it's very satisfying when the numbers come out the right way. And, and that's great. There's an important intuition there. It's important to understand that free trade can work because that, that it's not just a zero-sum game. But it's also important to recognize that the real economy doesn't look like two islands with 
fish and sweaters that <laughs> you can instead have a situation, for instance, where uh, one country is America and the other country is China. And China has decided it wants to be the global leader in semiconductors. And <laughs> it's, go <laughs> it's going to invest hundreds of billions of dollars in subsidizing semiconductor manufacturers so that everybody makes their semiconductors in China and the U.S. industry falls behind. And then instead of buying something else from the U.S., China is going to take a bunch of our debt. And so the final relationship will be, we don't make semiconductors anymore. China sends us semiconductors and we send back to China pieces of paper called U.S. Treasury bonds that say, I owe you lots of money someday in the future. Yeah. And yeah. That, that, that's not on the Econ 101 problem set, but it turns out that that's an equilibrium too. And policymakers are going to need a different approach to that besides... Well, it's free trade, so obviously uh, both sides are benefiting. And what I think conservatives bring to the table that neither libertarians nor progressives do, I think libertarians are just inclined to say, well, that's that's the free market, so that's great. You know, I, I had a very interesting conversation recently with a woman who's an, an editor at Reason Magazine. Uh, we, we did a podcast together discussing this. And one thing she said was, well, look, if if China wants to subsidize their semiconductor manufacturers and send us cheaper semiconductors, then I say, that's great, cheaper semiconductors. And so, I, you know, I think that there's a way that the, the libertarian perspective tends to overlook the the more sort of systemic ways that over time that might not actually <laughs> work out so well for the economy. And I think for progressives, there's a real hesitance to think of nations as in combination, as in competition at all. Um, that that progressives really want to um, imagine, and 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 I don't, I guess I mean the word imagine somewhat condescendingly, um, that uh, in fact we sort of can get beyond our national competition and instead sort of move forward as one human race. And, and that's an admirable impulse, uh, but it is not the way the world works, and it is certainly not the way the Chinese Communist Party is approaching public policy. And, and so I think a conservatism that says, A, wait a minute, it, it really matters <laughs> what, what, what kinds of industries we have in this country over time, and B, we really care about America as America being successful uh, is going to make better policy on China than than what we've been seeing out of either party in a long time. Yeah, I think there's, again, something to be said for that. Um, Trump, his China policies weren't necessarily the best, but the people who voted for Trump and Trump himself recognized the challenge posed by China. And I think that, again, speaks to how conservatives, you know, are potentially able to address these kind of challenges in really unique and potentially needed ways. So, yeah, thank you for that. Um, my next question here has to do with industrial policy. You mentioned that China was investing hundreds of billions of dollars in its semiconductor industry. And should the U.S. be doing something similar? Should we be investing heavily in our own economy to uh, strengthen ourselves uh, both at home and on the international stage? So, yes and no. Um, I mean, the, the short answer is yes, we, we we should be investing to strengthen ourselves on, on the international stage. I think it's important to say that that doesn't mean we should become China, right? The, the way to compete is not to say, well, I, I guess authoritarian communism and, you know, <laughs> state-owned enterprises are the way to go. So, 
off we go. But we do need to recognize that the international economy we are competing in is not one we get to design ourselves. And, you know, one thing I like to say is, you know, free trade and free markets are not synonymous. It's free trade or free markets, pick one. Because if you decide that you're going to expand your market to include China, then you are can, you are acquiescing to an economic arrangement where your market is not going to be free, where your consumers and producers are going to be influenced by the massive distortions that China chooses to introduce. And so to some extent, that that is going to happen, right? The correct answer isn't to just say, okay, let, you know, build a wall across the Pacific and we will not interact with China. Um, that's, that's not plausible. But as a result, it does mean that policymakers have to take an approach to the market that recognizes we're going to have to do something. And so the question is, okay, well, how do we make good policy that's consistent with our values that leverages our strengths and advantages and and the power of a free market capitalist system in ways that are going to counter what China is doing. Uh, And so, you know, just to take semiconductors as as an example, you know, we still far outpace China on on actual innovation. Um, The problem is that when it gets time to actually build the $10 billion, you know, fab that's going to make the semiconductors, it's 50% more expensive to do it here because China will give you the land and 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 the capital and, and everything else for, for free. And so if you want to still be making semiconductors here, and, and I think we do, partly for national security reasons, partly because I think innovation ultimately follows manufacturing. You know, one thing we were just doing research on this at American Compass that we were struck by is that semiconductor venture capital investment in the semiconductor industry is now higher in China than it is in the U.S. because ultimately innovation follows uh, the engineering. And so uh, if we want to have leadership for both for, for economic and national security reasons, we're going to have to do something. And, and there are sort of two sides to 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 the, uh, I guess I'd say there, there are two elements to the formula. One is uh, we are going to have to intervene in some ways uh, to make this a better place uh, to manufacture. And two, we are going to have to um, essentially punish China in some ways. We're going to have to say, uh, we're actually not interested in having you just dump subsidized semiconductors into the global market. And so we have to really think about where do we have leverage over the Chinese because we still have plenty of economic leverage. And how are we going to exercise that in ways that either cause them to change their behavior or reduce their advantage to the extent that they don't. And so I think there are some really good um, policy proposals out there. There's actually been a lot of progress on this in Congress. Um, A a big bill that passed last year as part of the National Defense Authorization Act, a proposal that's now part of uh, Biden's uh, infrastructure package that uh, a bipartisan group of senators just sent a letter in support of. And the, the kinds of ideas are, one, you know, we are going to have to subsidize um, the construction of domestic facilities. And, and we can do that in, in sort of fairly neutral ways that don't pick winners and losers and, you know, 
kind of open up too many doors to crony capitalism, but just say, look, if, you know, we here are the incentives that are available for people who create domestic semiconductor capacity to, to start to close that cost gap. And then we can also leverage our innovation advantage. Um, you know, we did something similar in the 80s when, when the semiconductor industry was really under threat from Japan. We created a, a consortium of, of industry leaders and supported by government uh, that, that actually collaborated on research. And we said, you know, government will put up half the, the money for the research and development and everything you come up with, you will share industry-wide. And, and industry will say that was instrumental in, in the U.S. regaining momentum and leadership. And, and so that's, you know, something along those lines is, is under discussion in Washington also. And the kind of thing that I guess you could say is not sort of strictly free market in the libertarian sense, but I think we should see as, as an element of, of a healthy, well-functioning market economy. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. That was really interesting. It does seem like the kind of conservatism that you're proposing might have a lot of common ground with Biden's mantra to build back better, right? You mentioned one of the provisions in his proposed infrastructure package to subsidize semiconductors. Um, So on that note is President Biden's infrastructure package moving in the right direction when it comes to investing in our economy and, you know, starting to rebuild America? I, th- I think parts of it are and, and parts of it aren't. I mean, the, you know, the, the recent political fight over sort of how do we define infrastructure is a, is a perfect example of that. You know, actual investments in infrastructure that are going to improve our economy's productivity, make us more internationally competitive, bolster key industries. I think that's terrific and really important. I think throwing in hundreds of billions of dollars for things like childcare and trying to claim that that's infrastructure too is, is first of all, just dishonest and politically unhealthy. You know, if, if you want to have a debate about childcare, by all means, like, let's do that. But the, the fact that you're trying to claim it's infrastructure <laughs> suggests maybe you don't want to have that debate. Um, and, and it's also not the, the kind of investment I think we need to be focused on. So I, I think you're right that, that there's definitely room for, for common ground. You know, the, the joke in the Trump administration was that, was that every week was, was infrastructure week. Uh, they, they just never actually got there. Um, so, you know, infrastructure is, is, is a great example of an, of an industry where, or excuse me, a, a policy area where I think there's, there's tremendous opportunity for, for progress. It will just take both sides being willing to sort of focus on the areas where, where they really agree instead of just trying to sort of accentuate the differences for the, for the sake of political point scoring. Right. Okay. So pivoting a bit, um, you've been very supportive of organized labor as something that a new form of conservatism could support. Um, do you think that potentially you know, increasing the level of unionization in this country could like have negative impacts on the competitiveness of American industries in the global economy. I'd just like to hear you flesh out your support of organized labor a bit more if that's possible. Yeah, I think it's really important to distinguish the idea of organized labor from unions as they exist in America today. I, I don't think we should be trying to expand American style big labor unions. Um, for one thing, because workers don't seem to like them. They are not popular with workers. They consistently lose union elections. Uh, and and they seem to be more sort of 
focused on 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 democratic party politics than on on actual core economic concerns of, of typical workers at this point um but that's a very different question from from the question of should we have a a flourishing system of organized labor in this country and and i think both parties prefer the former question because you have a democratic party that is heavily reliant on big labor and and wants to find ways to expand it and a republican party that has has historically sort of taken the the perspective of business and and seen being pro business as as being the same thing as being pro market and said, well, you know, we're just going to cheer the the demise of of labor, um, and and that's sort of the fight. But but it's a it's a real lost opportunity because the you know there are other ways to do organized labor, and and in fact the way that we do it in America is is something of an outlier where you know you sort of go you have, you have to go factory by factory, office by office, and and the union has to try to organize the workers at that location and they have to vote. And if 50% plus one say yes, then that's it. That's unionized. And if less say yes, then sorry, that's it. No union. Um, that's a really weird way to do things if you actually <laughs> step back and think about it. For, for one thing, it's a weird thing to sort of say, well, we should vote on. And if it's 50% plus one, then you're all in the union. And if it's 50% minus one, then no one's in the union. Um, but it also sets up a really bad dynamic, which which gets to your point about competitiveness, where <clears throat> unionization then almost by definition means a loss of competitiveness. Because if, if you're an employer and you end up with a union and your competitors don't have one, that's kind of a problem. Um, and, and so you get employers resisting unions very aggressively and very adversarial relationships with them. You see capital fleeing um, companies that have unions, industries that have unions, regions that have unions. And, and so it's just, it's, it's just not a good way to do things. If, if you look at how unionization is, is done in much of the world and, and something that's very common in in, for instance, a place like Northern Europe, it's done much more at at, what's at at the industry level with what's called sectoral bargaining. And the idea is that um, there are going to be unions representing the workers in an industry, and, and workers can be members of the union or not. That's up to them. Uh, and there's going to be a trade association representing the employers, and those two sides are going to have to, to negotiate uh, and interestingly, in most cases, they're going to want to negotiate because if they can strike their own agreements, that is preferable to what government might impose through regulation. And so at, at the industry level, you're going to have agreements and, and those are going to apply to the whole industry. So individual firms don't have to worry they're going to fall behind because they're the one subject to a union agreement. And the other thing that happens then is that you find that both, not just the employer, but the union is then sensitive to to the international competitiveness concerns. So the, the classic example of this is Germany, which is obviously very competitive internationally, <laughs> has, you know... Yeah, in manufacturing. Yeah, yeah. Has, has very high level of unionization. And one of the core principles of, of the key unions representing the, you know, the, the manufacturing sector is we actually need to make sure that wages don't grow faster than productivity because it's, it's through those faster productivity gains... And, and rising international competitiveness that ultimately the industry and therefore the workers as well are going to be successful. And among other things, the union and workers can feel more comfortable making those concessions because they know at the end of the day, 
if if the industry as a whole is successful, they still have that seat at the table to ensure that they share fully in the success. And so, you know, none of this is to say, well, we just should do the German model. Obviously, you know, there are tons of different models in Europe. It's it is much more complicated than just saying this model or that model is we we can just import it wholesale to the U.S. You know, again, conservatives will be the first to say we need to be a lot more sensitive than that to the institutions we actually have in this country and how they operate. But the point is that in principle, there are lots of ways to do organized labor that look nothing like what we have. And that for conservatives who would like to see uh, workers and, and employers able to meet on a level playing field in the marketplace, who would like to see them able to reach agreements rather than having to look to government to regulate, and who would like to see unions as as key institutions in civil society that, that can provide meaningful support to workers. Uh, for, for all those reasons, that's that's something that conservatives should be, should be trying to lead on, whereas, you know, we not doing what we've seen the right of center do, which is just sort of say, oh, unions are bad. I hope they go away. Right. That's a really helpful clarification. And you've definitely answered my question. So I appreciate that. Uh, My final question for today has to do with climate change. I feel like conservatives have an opportunity to take more of a leadership role in climate change by, you know, promoting relatively market oriented policies like carbon taxes, especially when the alternative might be the Green New Deal. And so I was wondering what your thoughts on that are and how conservatives can lead in that field. Well, I think you're right that there's a real opportunity for conservative leadership. Um, You know, I I don't think it'll take the form of something like a carbon tax. I, I think the carbon tax is sort of the ultimate technocratic solution that that you know trusts that there's some efficient price that that will therefore just kind of lead to the best market outcome and it's important to notice among other things that an efficient carbon tax one of the things it does not lead to is reducing car- climate change very much <laughs> and and this is one of the reasons that you will find uh, fossil fuel companies typically very pro carbon tax and <laughs> climate activists very anti carbon tax uh, because if, if you actually want to uh, solve climate change. It's not just a matter of asking people to pay for for the amount of 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 carbon dioxide they want to emit. It's a matter of actually finding a pathway to a low carbon economy. And so, I think a place that conservatives can be really valuable is 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 first of all in in scoping the the scale of the problem. Is you know unlike the kind of more political right of center today that that would prefer to to say there is no problem in some cases, you know, being very clear on what the science says and acknowledging that there's a real problem here. Um, but also unlike where a lot on the left of center tend to be explaining that it's not the end of the world, that 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 neither the science nor the economics nor common sense suggests that these kinds of changes over the course of a century are something that, um, you know, are, are just unmanageable for a society because, in fact, adaptation occurs. And as adaptation occurs, things, things may be different in various ways, um, but, but the costs don't need to be as high as the, the kind of doomsayers in, in a lot of cases predict. And so where I think conservatives can really lead is, is in a clear-eyed scoping of the problem in an emphasis on solutions that are are part, how do we prevent climate change from happening, but also part, 
acknowledgement that some of it's going to happen and we want to adapt effectively. Uh, and, and then in a focus on thinking, okay, how do you actually make incremental change over time? That, you know, the, the Green New Deal idea that, you know, if, if we spend $95 trillion um, and, and just sort of convert everything to, 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 to wind turbines and, and solar panels, that, 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 that that's a solution is, is just a non-starter. It's, <laughs> it's not going to happen. If we tried it, we wouldn't succeed. Uh, and even if we did it, it wouldn't address the main problem, which is the developing world where most of the, you know, all of the emissions growth and, and most of the emissions are, are ultimately going to come from. And so an, an, an approach that's much more measured and focused on research and development and, uh, and, and, and the development of new uh, methods of, of, of energy generation that are, are going to reduce fossil fuel use over time. Um, is is the much more sensible course, and and I think you know there are actually many conservatives out there that are are talking in those terms, and I, I think in addition to being correct, it turns out to be a much better political message than than what what the extremes of either of the the parties are offering. I see. That's also very interesting. And on that note, we're at our time. There's a lot more that I'd like to ask you, and I'm sure a lot more that our audience would like to hear from you. But again. Thank you so much for joining us today. This was awesome. And to our audience, thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you, Warren. Thank you for having me. This podcast is a production of the Nelson A. Rockefeller Center for Public Policy and the Social Sciences. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and not of the Rockefeller Center. This episode was produced and edited by Laura Howard. We hope you'll join us for our next episode, and if you want more information, you can find us at rockefeller.dartmouth.edu.